Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So let's dive into the first one. So the first one is from Alexandra and she is saying the answer is B on this question but how do you get it? So here's the question. Based on the following labor and production figures, what is the number of full-time equivalents 40 hours per week needed for the next fiscal year? And they're giving us two data points. So they're saying productivity standard per meal, which is saying like, how long does it take to be make a meal is 15 minutes. And then they're telling us that in the year that they're projecting that they're going to have to make 599,040 um, meals. So we have that each meal takes 15 minutes. And then we also have how much, um, how many meals total. So the first thing that I would do here is you want to find total total minutes needed. So you're multiplying your projected meals times 15 minutes because we're saying, well, every single meal takes 15 minutes. And that is going to give you a huge number in minutes that we're going to divide down by 60. So we're taking meals per minute times meals to find total minutes, dividing it by 60. And then we're going to be getting our hours. And then what we want to think of is, okay, how many kind of workable hours are there for an FTE in a year? And that is when the standards to know that is 2,080 hours. So when we divide our total hours down by our 2,080 hours, we get 72. So remember, with the FTE, the first question is, how many hours do I need worked? And sometimes we have to work for that a little bit. So find out how many total hours, and then we're dividing it by our full-time equivalent here. And again, it's asking us in the year, so we can just divide it by 2,080, which is that standard for, um, for an FTE. Okay, next question. We have a question from Haley. This is off Pocket Prep. It's saying, Cody's Prime a Seafood and Steakhouse introduces a special surf and turf menu item this month. What should the selling price be for the new menu item? So they're telling us we have raw food cost is $14.45. Food cost percentage is 40%. We also have labor cost is 12 minutes at $13 per hour. And then we're getting our labor food cost percentage is going to be 48%. So the first thing to notice here is that they are not telling us what method to use. And remember, there's three different methods that we have. We have our traditional pricing or factor pricing. We have prime costs, and then we have cost plus pricing. So anytime you get a pricing question, they're not telling you what to use. The first thing is you need to say, what information do I have? Because they're always gonna give you enough to use one of the formulas. So here, 
I can kind of run through my list and say, okay, well, for prime pricing, I need to have my raw food costs, my labor costs, and my markup factor. I don't have my markup factor, so it's not that one. For cost plus pricing, I'm going to have all of these percentages um, and my raw food cost. Well, I, don't, I only have food cost percentage, which so it's not cost plus pricing. And then I'm saying, okay, well, this is factor pricing. So in factor pricing, I don't need the labor cost. So throw that away, cut out the fluff. And so then I'm going to be using my factor pricing where I'm going to take 100 divided by the food cost percentage. So 100 divided by 40. That gives me my markup factor of 2.5. And then I'm multiplying that times my raw food cost. So when I do that, I see that I should sell this product at $36.14. Now, if you're there and you're like, Dana, I'm coming to your math class next week, but I hate, hate, hate the math. When you're doing um, our factor traditional pricing, we don't even need to do this because we can also say, well, if I want to have my food cost be 40%, that means that my raw food cost over my selling price needs to be 40%. So I can have my numerator be the $14.45 and then just plug in the answers underneath and you can plug and chug and find out that way too. Okay, next up, we have a question from Megan. She says, I need help on the best way to solve this one. It seems so easy, but I can get confused. And again, this is why I put it on the Facebook page so we can help you out. So it says, the question is, how much will it cost to prepare these scrambled eggs? 25 need to be made. And so here we have, it's telling us the cost, it's telling up us our cost per dozen is 83 cents. It's telling me that two ounces of margarine are going, are going to be $2.29 per pound and two cups of milk are going to be $2.50 per gallon. So with this one, again, it kind of seems straightforward, but then what you need to realize is this is a conversion game. And a lot of my students, they have difficulty with remembering like, well, what is ounces to cups? Like, I don't, you know, I drink my water and I'm like, I don't know, it's a lot. You know, I'm not like, oh, how many pints is it? Um, so definitely make sure you're looking at a guide of the conversions. This can really help you here. Um, and what we want to be doing is finding what is the price per item, right? Because I'm saying, you know, with my, with my eggs, right, I'm trying to make 25 scrambled eggs, right? It, but I, the cost for is in dozens. So I need to find out how much that is. So if I take my 83 cents divided by a dozen, I'm saying, great, it's about 7 cents per egg times that times 25, it's about $1.75 for all 25 of my eggs. And I'm doing similar with the margarine where I'm saying, well, it's giving me $2.29 per pound, but I need two ounces. So if I divide 2.29 by 16, multiply that times two ounces, that's going to be saying that it's going to be 28 cents for the margarine. Same idea with the cups. It's telling me Right, that I'm getting gallons, and so I'm solving it that way too. So again, we're kind of just breaking it down, and this is a great example of writing it down is gonna help you stay organized and not get stuck. 
Next one, we have a question on nitrogen balance. I told you guys this one, math was the theme of the week, which is why we have, again, check out the equations part one and math boot camp if you need some help with that. Um, so it's saying a client consumes 20 grams of protein. Total nitrogen losses are 10 grams. What is the patient's nitrogen balance? So with nitrogen balance, we're thinking about grams of nitrogen in. So that's going to be our first half of the equation. And I'm taking grams of protein divided by 6.25. So I'm getting 1.6 grams of nitrogen in. And then I'm going to be subtracting my grams of nitrogen out. And so my grams of nitrogen out are going to be those total, um, my total losses plus four. So I'm kind of comparing what's going on in versus what's coming out. So on the first half, I'm doing 20 divided by 6.25. And then I'm subtracting that from 14, right? Because I'm doing the 10 plus the four. So here I'm getting a negative nitrogen balance of negative 10.8, which means that this patient's probably catabolic. They're stressed. Okay, next one we have 10 employees resigned from their position. There were 25 employees to start. Five employees were hired. What is the turnover rate? So this student's saying, at first I did 10 divided by 25, and I got 40%. But what do I do with the five employees that were hired, or is that information thing that I need to throw out? Right. So this question's asking us about employee turnover rate. So what we're thinking is looking at kind of the total positions. So I'm thinking about how many people kind of chain left compared to how many positions there are, right? So when we're saying the five employees, we're not saying there's five, you know, new jobs. There's still 25 jobs total. So doing the 10 divided by the positions available is going to give you the 40%. So it's a 40% of our turnover rate. Thinking people leaving the department, getting fired, quitting. Okay, next question we have from Caitlin. Which of the following settings is most likely to use loss leaders? So we have correctional, food service, we have inpatient health facilities, group counseling clinics, or grocery stores. So this is a great example where you need to know your vocab. So when we're thinking about loss leaders, this is when you're offering something at a discount to literally get people in the door. You know, so like if we're thinking about this um, at the start of COVID, right, maybe I don't know where the Krispy Kremes are located. But anyway, we have Krispy Kremes up here in Massachusetts and they were like one dollar Krispy Kreme donut if you or I forget if it was if you had your hospital ID or got COVID vaccinated, one of them. And so that was a loss leader because they were hoping I'm going to come in, get my donut and be like, this was a waste just to come for a donut. Let me get a coffee. Let me get a dozen donuts. So that $1 donut is a loss leaders because it's getting me in the door. So I'm looking here for the thing that's going to get me in the door. So correctional food service, your people are already there. Don't need to do this. Inpatient, the same. Customers are still there. The group counseling clinic, again, your people are there. You're feeding kind of the people who are there. There's a meal program. 
versus the grocery stores, this is getting like, you know, giving a free sample, giving a coupon, getting you there. So you're going to buy more. So the lost leaders is more targeted to when you're having like customers and clients coming in, you're like, have a little bit of this, like, right, this is Costco giving you a free sample. And you're like, I didn't come here for ravioli, but I need ravioli now. Um, then we had another question about, you know, asking about the different types of calcium. And so when we're thinking about the different types of calcium, what really is kind of varying is the amount of elemental calcium. So the one I use for my patients most commonly is definitely calcium carbonate. This is about 40% elemental calcium. Um, first, another one I see a lot too is calcium citrate. This one's about 21%. So remember with the supplement forms, they can be in different structures, different compositions too. So a lot of the time when we're seeing those like chemical formula names, that is why. Next one, this is from Anna. She says, would someone be able to explain this? I would think it would be the opposite if someone is buying unhealthy food with less income because healthier food is more expensive. So let's see, this is off pocket prep. So what shift in food intake happens when nutrition, with nutrition transition and when does it occur? So let's see our options. So we have increase in complex carb, sugar, decrease in fat as income decreases, decrease in complex carbs, fat, increase in sugar as, in, as income decreases. Then we have increase in complex carbs, decrease in fat and sugar as income increases. And then we have the answer, which is decrease in complex carbs, increase in fat and sugar as income increases. And so this one, I can definitely see, you know, why it can get really confusing too. I mean, so what this question, and I don't particularly like this question either. And it's funny because people in the comments were like, I don't really like this question either. What it's more kind of asking is thinking about how does income kind of impact what we're able to eat. And so this question is kind of saying, well, if we're having an increase in income or if we're having an increase in income or a decrease in income, we might see some change, some changes. And so when we're thinking about carb complex carbs, right, we're thinking like fruits and vegetables um, that we would be having an increase or a decrease in depending what it is. So the way Pocket Prep is saying this one is they're saying that there would be a decrease in complex carbs, increase in fat and sugar as income increases. And they're saying that this is just related to the income increasing. Again, I wouldn't take this question as a great community option um, to when we're kind of thinking about it, backing up holistically, we are typically seeing, right, that as people's income goes down, they don't have as much money to kind of splurge on the fruits and vegetables and things too. So I would say I would definitely think, you know, that you're going to see increase in sugar and fat as income goes down versus when you're having income increasing, you're more likely to have fruits and vegetables. But again, that question's a little bit weird. And don't let seeing kind of weird questions like that take away from what you kind of know. Remember, not every single source is great 100% of the time. 
Next one, I put up a picture of lycopene. And to remind you guys, with the fruits and vegetables and vitamins and minerals, we can often get kind of pigeon-toed and thinking like, oh, lycopene, just tomatoes. And then we get questions and I might say, which is a good source of lycopene? And you don't see it. So one thing that I think is really helpful when you're going through the vitamins and minerals is Google a picture like foods high in magnesium, foods high in lycopene, because that visual is going to stick with you a lot better than just a list of food, right? The majority of you guys are visual learners. Like even the other day, I got asked to do a magnesium ed and I like had to think for a second, I was like, magnesium? Like, you know, it's just not things we think every day. So looking at a picture is going to help you to kind of remember. So especially when you're doing your vitamins and minerals study guide, throw in a picture. That's definitely, um, that's definitely going to help you a lot. Okay. So next one, we have our dreaded scoop sizes. So this is out of Inman. Um, it says a number 12 scoop was used to serve 600 ba ba uh, servings of mashed potatoes instead of a 16 scoop. How many servings are they going to be short? So this, so this is a great question too because it's causing us to need to use a lot of our math skills as well as our scoop sizes. So remember with our scoop sizes, it's 32 divided by the scoop number. So I think the best way to make sure you're never gonna make, get mixed up is think of your favorite scoop size. So if you wanna copy mine, mine is the number 60 scoop. And I like the number 60 scoop because it's a half an ounce garnish on top, right? Because if we did 32 divided by 60, right, it's half an ounce. So if you know that, right, and I accidentally kind of went to go set up my equation, I was like, let me just put my 60 scoop in and I did 60 divided by 32, I wouldn't get half an ounce. So I think that it's just a helpful way to ground you. You can pick a different scoop if you want. So this one, what we first want to say is, okay, what's going to happen, right? So a number 12 scoop, so 32 divided by 12, that is a 2.67 ounce. So that is what I used when I should have used the number 16. So the number 12 is going to give us 2.67, and that's what I used by accident. And if I do 32 divided by my 16, what I should have been using is the number two ounce. Um, sorry, not the number two. I should have been using the number 16 scoop, which would have given me a two ounce scoop. And so what I wanna be thinking about here is I wanna be thinking, okay, well, how many am I going to be short? And so there's a few different ways that you can be doing this. Again, I would definitely start out by thinking about, okay, how many, you know, how many ounces are there in each scoop? And then going from there, an easy way to do this is to kind of say, okay, well, if we take two ounces divided by 60, two, well, 2.67 ounces, that's going to leave us, right, with saying, okay, comparatively, if we do two divided by 2.67, Six, seven, I'm at like 75% of, you know, what I'm going to need to give. So if we do 600 servings times 75%, because I'm saying I'm only going to get 75%, um, 
75% of what I should have, right? That's telling me that I'm only going to get 450 servings. And so if I do 600 divide by 450, oops, 600 divide, sorry, minus 450, that tells me that I'm going to be 150 short. And so that allows me to pick the answer of D, which is 156. It's close. It's just off a little bit from the rounding, but that is the quickest way to do this. So you take the scoop, right, that you should have been using and put that over the scoop you did use. So we're doing two divided by 2.67 ounces. It's telling us we're only going to have 75% of what we needed. Find the 75% of the 600, subtract that out from 600, and that's going to tell you how many you're missing. All right. So next one, we had a question about going over sensitivity versus specificity. And so when we're thinking about sensitivity, this is the ability of a test to write correctly. Ooh, tough word. Correctly identify patients with a disease. First, when we're thinking specificity, it's the ability of the test to identify people without the disease. So I don't know, in research, there's all those things that kind of sound super similar. So those are definitely, especially with those vocab, good ones to do little flashcards on too. Okay, next one, we got a tube feeder question. So it says, what is the administration rate of an enteral feeding if a patient is receiving 800, not 800, sorry, 1,800 milliliters of one calorie per milliliter per day? So what this is saying is we're asking to find the rate. Now, it's really easy on this one because if I give a one calorie per milliliter formula, it's going to just be, right, that 1,800 milliliters. So all I need to do is take my milliliters, divide by 24, and that's going to give me my milliliters per hour, and that's 75. Perfect. So next question from... L, they're saying active transport is energy required and moves from areas of low concentration to high concentration. How does the movement of serum glucose into our cell fall under active transport if we're going from areas of higher concentration to lower concentration in the cell? So this is a great one to talk about because active transport does not always mean going across the like against the concentration gradient, it definitely can. But what we're saying with active transport is there's something that's kind of causing resistance. So in a lot of cases, like I was describing, right, if I'm going against the concentration gradient, right, going from area of low to high, I need that energy, that active transport to kind of like push me and launch me up there. Now, active transport can also be required if we're saying like that there's a barrier to getting in and often the barrier is that cell membrane and we're saying oh you know we have to put a little bit of input so i can kind of like use the elevator and get up or down or wherever i'm going so active transport doesn't just mean low to high it means that there's some sort of barrier that i have to put kind of energy input in to kind of pay my way um so definitely a great question on there to be asking okay next up we have a question from Sarah. So she's saying, can someone explain this in question to me? A patient has severe acute pancreatitis, experiencing nausea and vomiting 
requiring 2,500 calories per day. Which of the following would you recommend? And so this one, we're having 3,000 calories of one calorie per cc tube feeding with the jejunum. B is 1,500 cc's of two cal in a nasogastric tube, and then two options for TPN. So something to think about with this is you want to think about what is kind of the best practices for severe acute pancreatitis. And the best practice is to be giving that post-pyloric tube feeding before you go to TPN. So answer would be to do that um, jejunal tube. And again, the one calorie per milliliter, perfect. Because again, when we're feeding into the small bowel, if I do too concentrated, sometimes I can cause dumping syndrome. Um, next up, we have a question from Jasmine. So she is saying, I'm taking my exam in October. Like who has a study template or calendar? And I want to remind you guys that I have my free um, self-study assessment as well as the free RD exam prep courses. And those will really help you to kind of walk through on how to make a schedule. I also did a specific podcast episode, and that's on my podcast, Dietetics with Dana, where I walk you through questions on how to make a schedule. So definitely check out those resources. Those are going to help you a lot to make your schedule. And also don't forget that if you need help making a schedule, I do offer one-on-one -on -one sessions to kind of help you navigate how to make a schedule and also kind of assess where you are in your studying, and you can get my recommendations um, for what I think you might want to do differently this time around. So those you can find out more on my website, danajfnutrition.com slash tutoring. Um, next question we had is, which of the following is not a positive acute phase reactant? Um, and so when we're thinking about a, po a positive acute phase reactant, a lot of the time, right, we might be thinking like, oh, you know, albumin, right? but that's a negative acute phase reactant. So when we're saying a positive acute phase reactant, it means when there's stress, this level's going up. First, when we're thinking about albumin, when there's, it's negative, because when there's stress, it's going, it's going down. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.